Hello, welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss with the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Salt Lake City. Today on the pod, we're talking to Alan Zibel with Public Citizen and Nicole Heil with the Private Equity Stakeholder Project about how Wall Street is funding new drilling on public lands and threatening to leave taxpayers with a massive cleanup bill. You may have seen horror stories about what happens when private equity firms take over nursing homes or the newspaper industry, for example. Well, those same folks are now getting into the oil and gas business, aiming to cut costs and increase profits. And when you combine that with the incredibly low bonding rates that oil companies have to put up in order to drill on public lands, it's a recipe for disaster. But before we get to that, let's do the news. Well, today's news is a bit of a grab bag since so much has happened since our last episode. First, we've got to talk about this looming government shutdown. It could have an impact on everything from military pay to public lands, of course. We have seen some of this play out before. It was 2019 when the government shut down for over a month. That time... Trump's Interior Secretary, David Bernhardt, directed the National Park Service to use entrance fees to keep some national parks open during the shutdown. Afterwards, the Government Accountability Office found that that was completely illegal. It clearly violated a law called the Federal Lands Recreation Enhancement Act, or FLORIA, which is what allows the government to collect entrance and user fees on public lands. So this time around, Senator John Barrasso of Wyoming is already asking President Biden's Interior Department to keep national parks open using that same method, despite the GAO already saying, no, that's not legal. Now, also in 2019, the state of Wyoming even considered a bill that would have allowed the governor to outright seize federal facilities during a government shutdown. That bill didn't pass. The way it was written was almost certainly unconstitutional in the first place. So, assuming the government shuts down this coming weekend, which it looks like it's going to happen, Yellowstone will close its gates unless Senator Barrasso can convince his colleagues to, you know, do their jobs and pass a budget. Meanwhile, Utah and Arizona have said they will fund some national park services if the government shuts down. This is different than what Wyoming was considering. Arizona and Utah use state funds. In the case of Arizona, lottery funds. Utah legislators may dip into the general fund to basically pay the federal government to keep some or all national parks open during a shutdown. And that, of course, is very different than what Wyoming was talking about a few years ago, which was just straight-up land seizure. Next up, two new National Monument campaigns went public in the past few weeks. They are focused on protecting the Owyhee Canyonlands in southeast Oregon and the Chukwala landscape south of Joshua Tree National Park. These are both very exciting monument proposals that would protect a significant amount of western public land. The Owyhee Canyon lands is one of the largest undeveloped areas in the West. We've got an episode on that proposal coming soon. And the proposed Chukwala National Monument would nearly double the amount of protected desert landscape in California's Coachella Valley. We'll have a blog up on that proposal as well. Finally, the team here at CWP just put out an analysis of public comments on the BLM's proposed oil and gas rule, showing near universal support for the rule, which includes increasing minimum bonding requirements. Now, that's a good segue into our interview, which is all about how private equity is taking advantage of the current low bonding requirements to drill wells on the cheap, leaving taxpayers to clean up their mess. 
Our guests today are Alan Zibel with Public Citizen, a consumer advocacy group focused on the influence of big business in government, along with Nicole Heil with the Private Equity Stake... Bleh. Along with Nicole Heil with the Private Equity Stakeholder Project, a watchdog group focused on bringing transparency and accountability to the private equity sector. They're here to talk about a report they co-authored. It's called Private Profits, Public Risks, and it looks into how Wall Street, or private equity firms, are funding new drilling on public land and threatening to leave taxpayers with a massive cleanup bill. Nicole, Alan, thank you so much for being here on the pod. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. It's great to be here. Alan, let's start with you. What's the top line from this report, the uh, the elevator pitch summary, if you will? So what we found in our analysis um, is that 19 uh, private equity firms had funded drilling on public land uh, since 2017, and um, taxpayers are at risk uh, for a, a total potential bill of about $380 million uh, for cleaning up um, uh, the drilling on those lands. That's sort of the key point. I mean, that that um, uh, you know, assumes that all these companies go bankrupt, which is you know not necessarily likely to happen, but that's kind of like the total risk to the taxpayer and to the companies themselves. So, Nicole, let's go to you next. What is private equity, and how does it work in the case of oil and gas, especially on federal lands? Yeah, so in general, private equity firms are investment uh, companies. They take capital and invest in a company exchange for some ownership stake with the goal of increasing that value over time before eventually selling it and making a profit. Fairly straightforward. Um, in general, private equity firms get their funding, so they fundraise from institutional investors, which includes public pension funds and is sort of the anchor of our investigation to private equity. Um, and they use the funding from, from public pension funds to invest in companies across our economy. Um, in this case, we see public employees' retirement savings are being used to invest capital for fossil fuel investments. So pension funds are then reliant on returns from these investments in fossil fuels to pay their retirees' pension plans. Another really important aspect of private equity deals are the amount of debts that they leverage to acquire companies. If the companies that uh, private equity firms buy cannot pay off their debt, private equity is able to walk away, leaving the debts in any cleanup or other messes for the public to take care of. Um, the success of debt burden imposed on portfolio companies is usually coupled with intense cost-cutting measures and financial engineering to extract money as fees and dividends. And this can leave companies vulnerable to bankruptcy and accidents, which are paid for by the public. So who are some of these players here? We, I've heard about private equity stepping into other fields. Certainly, we, we've seen it in the media. Um, are, are these the same sorts of firms or are there new ones in play here? Right. So there are, um, we found in our report that we are seeing the big players. So groups like Blackstone, the Carlyle Group, Apollo Global Management, KKR, Warburg Pincus. Um, and then there are, of course, energy specific private equity firms, someone like NGP Energy Capital, for example. So we see really across the board different types of private equity firms, as well as different kinds of deals in this um, in this space. We've noted a few of those in our report and some interesting ones. Um, 
I would say is Civitas Resources, so private equity firm Kimridge Energy Management, which is backed by Canada's largest public pension fund, rolled up several Colorado oil and gas companies to form a newly publicly traded company, which is Civitas Resources, um, back in 2021. And Civitas remains one of the largest players in Colorado's fossil fuel extraction industry. Um, Alan, would, is there any that you want to highlight as well? Well, I would um, also in, in Colorado, I would um, highlight Terra Energy, which is um, a big private private equity backed driller on the Western Slope. And um, they are um, a joint venture of a, a company, a private equity firm in L.A. called Kane Anderson and Warburg Pincus um, in New York, which is led by our former Treasury Secretary of the United States, Tim Geithner. Um, we dug into, as Nicole mentioned, we dug into Civitas um, quite a bit. Um, they've been very busy in the Denver area and, um, you know, are, are clashing with neighbors um, in the Aurora Reservoir um, area in Aurora, Colorado. Um, and so they um, have been in the, your local news in Denver quite a bit. They're also expanding um, into New Mexico through a purchase they recently made and they've raised a bunch of money. Um, so the, these, um, you know, these companies have often profited from, uh, you know, as Nicole mentioned, rolling up um, other companies. They're, they're often companies that have gone bankrupt, you know, the companies that went bankrupt um, during the last oil bust um, and they, they bought them on the cheap, rolled them up. And then presumably, you know, a couple, couple years later, a couple years from now, they'll exit the whole thing. They'll build a bigger company and sell off the whole, the entire, um, the entire operation. So is this a new issue, Nicole, or has private equity investment in federal drilling been around for a while? So across the energy investment landscape, um, One trend we're noticing as publicly listed oil majors are succumbing to public pressure, they are offloading less productive fossil fuel assets to claim reductions to their carbon footprints, as well as to reap some ESG benefits for their brands. Consequently, private equity firms have stepped up to become regular buyers of those assets, continuing to operate these assets in the less regulated private markets. where private equity companies aren't held to the same financial disclosure regulations, and they're also able to dodge some of the accountability around um, oil and gas cleanups and well abatements. And, you know, as we see oil demand forecasted to peak in 2030, continuing to invest in and maintain these oil and gas assets increases financial risks, both for private equities investors and for the public. So, Ellen, that I think brings bonding into this discussion. Remind us what bonding is within this context of oil and gas drilling on federal lands, and how has this current bonding setup that we have in America led to this private equity situation that we have? Um, yeah. So, you know, as 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 folks know. Um, you know, operators are required by state and federal law to post um, some sort of financial um, assurance, which is essentially a financial guarantee um, that will come into play after if, if they are not able to do the cleanup. So if they are um, if they neglect their legal responsibility, their legal response, their legal requirement 
to um, clean up and, and plug, abandon, remediate the well pad area, um, those financial assurances kick in. And in theory, um, those assurances are, are, are supposed to be able to cover um, um, the cleanup liability. The, the, the issue is really that the bonding requirements at the state and federal level have been far, far too low. Um, you know, it's been a recognized problem for many, many years, um, noted by the GAO, noted by, you know, numerous independent experts. Um, and, you know, only now the, the Biden administration has just proposed new rules um, uh, to impose tougher bonding requirements on those who drill um, on federal lands. And we're, you know, of course, expecting the industry to oppose those changes, um, but they are sorely needed. So I'm going to jump in here and ask maybe sort of a dumb question. Obviously, offloading those cleanup costs to taxpayers helps save these companies money. But how do they how do the private equity firms make money off of buying these assets and then just turning around and reselling them? Right. So part of the answer to this question is the failure of government agencies to effectively oversee the oil and gas industry. So this makes um, it possible for firms to profit from oil and gas drilling operations that would otherwise make little economic sense. Some policies um, that I'm referring to include you know, weak, weak cleanup requirements, tax policies that incentivize oil production and bankruptcy rules. Oh, sorry. These policies include weak cleanup requirements, tax policies that incentivize oil production, and bankruptcy rules that allow oil and gas companies to dodge well cleanup costs. I also think it's worth noting in general that the time frame that private equity typically owns a portfolio company is really out of step with how we how I think we should be thinking about well cleanup. Private equity companies usually only hold a company for about five years and they're searching for an outsized profit in those five years. So whether that is cost cutting measures um, or other types of financial engineering, they're able to sort of reap profits that companies that are more publicly accountable wouldn't be allowed to do. All right. So that's how private equity works. And I, certainly understand now the risks that this poses. What I was fascinated by with this research, Alan, uh, is the scope of this problem and that you, as you found, this potential $300 million bomb, essentially, that taxpayers are looking at. I mean, how many wells are we talking about here in play? Yeah, we are talking about, um, in the scope of the report, is about 2,700 um, oil and gas wells that we identified um, that were controlled by private equity-backed drillers. And interestingly, Colorado was um, uh, had the most by far um, um, in terms of, well, Colorado had, had the most uh, by far in terms of percentage of, of wells that were uh, controlled by private equity-backed firms. Uh, you know, New, New Mexico has far more wells than Colorado, um, you know, in general, because it's a bigger area. Um, but um, Colorado had the highest percentage of private equity-backed um, drilling permits and the highest raw number of, but, um, you know, as a percentage, it's about 78% of, of federal um permit approvals since 2017 in uh, in Colorado. 
So the numbers are very high, you know, due to some of the Denver era drilling and um, a lot of it is the Western Slope is, is, is Terra Energy. So as you mentioned, they're buying wells that exist, but they're also applying to drill new wells, it sounds like. Um, so how does bonding need to change to sort of shelter taxpayers or, or um, buffer taxpayers from taking on this burden? And is it too late to make those changes in some cases? No, I don't think it's too late. I mean, I think that, um, you know, bonding um, needs to change and be more restrictive at the federal and, and state level for new wells. And I think that, that you know, these companies do have an incentive to comply. I mean, you know, one of the things that we talk about a lot in the report is the um, the ESG slash greenwashing issue. Some of these companies... Um, you know, particularly if they bought up, and I'm thinking of Civitas here, if they bought up companies that were known bad actors in, in neighborhoods in the Denver area, um, which Civitas did, they've really taken on kind of a, a strategy of trying to approach the community in a, a more kind of, I don't want to say friendly, but like, in a, you know, they, they've tried to seem approachable. They do a lot of sponsoring of events locally, and they've tried to kind of attempt to um, cast themselves as a, as a good neighbor. So, um, you know, one would hope that they wouldn't fight tougher bonding requirements, but, you, you know, you never know. And of course, I mean, you know, the folks who are directly affected by the drilling, you know, really don't care about greenwashing and ESG promises. They just care that you're drilling right next to their house, which is, which is really not, not good, <laughs> especially in a, in a dense area like Denver. So we've talked about bonding as what maybe the biggest issue that needs to be addressed or way to mitigate the risk here. Are there other issues that need to be fixed or are there other possible solutions maybe outside of the BLM space? Is there a role for the Securities and Exchange Commission to play or other sort of uh, corporate oversight? Right. I mean, so there, there's there's definitely talk in D.C., sort of rumblings behind the scenes in, D, in D.C. about changes to bankruptcy code. And um, and and this is um, this is directly relevant to Colorado. Right. So Colorado um, has had um, these are not private equity backed companies, but um, they had they they had some some serious bad actors that have battled with the state over cleanup. And, and the one that filed for bankruptcy was PetroShare. And the state had to um, essentially line up, you know, as a regular creditor in the bankruptcy um, to get their money. And you know, I don't, I don't think they ended up getting all of their money. But they, the, you know, the bankruptcy does not give special priorities to states and to the taxpayer. Um, they're just like an ordinary creditor. So that that really needs to be changed um, because you know the public the public interest should get some of the highest priority in those bankruptcy cases. And I'm sure, um, you know, I would think folks in the governor's office and the Colorado attorney general's office would, you know, hopefully concur with that because I think they spent quite a lot of time and effort trying to get some of that money back. Um, so that, that's one piece, you know, it's uh, bonding, it's you know, environmental cleanup regulations, it's methane, um, 
methane regulations, methane monitoring. Um, you know, some of these companies do their own methane monitoring, right? And whether those numbers are fully verified and trustworthy is another issue that needs to be tackled. Um, there are a, a bunch of related issues. Nicole, is there anything more broadly that you guys are working on in terms of just making private equity more accountable and transparent that would apply here? Right. So private equity is a bit of a black box. And one other issue that needs to be addressed, although it is not a solution, it is part of understanding the scale of the problem, is to understand the opaqueness and the lack of disclosures within private equity owned oil and gas companies. As of right now, the public must rely on self-generated statements, data and disclosures from the industry, which means that they have been broadly able to write their own narratives about their climate impacts. So this creates a result of a confusing mix of greenwashing and opacity that really leaves public as well as their investors in the dark about what any of it really means. Um, at Private Equity Stakeholder Project, um, we try to bring some of these investments to light. We will dig through press releases, company statements, regulatory filings, et cetera, to begin to piece together the bigger picture. It, it, let me dive in there a little more. How how do you go about doing that? You get some public statements, obviously, as you mentioned, but without that kind of transparency that you tend to see from more publicly traded companies, what are the tools that you end up using to the extent that you can, you know, talk about them without giving away too many secrets? Yeah, of course. Um, so one big source for us is also commercial databases like PitchBook. Um, given the large amount of private equity-backed oil and gas drilling companies, we were able to use um, private commercial databases and cross-reference our own research with federal agencies that track permitting and royalties, including the Office of Natural Resource Revenue and as well as the BLM. Yeah, and just to add on that, I mean, we did some pretty painstaking research here. We, we, we The real key thing is that the federal lands um, permits – only include um, the name of an oil and gas drilling operator, the operator name. And the operator name is not necessarily or sometimes different from the parent name, the more public name. So we had to associate sort of by, by very labor-intensive Googling and, and poking around, you know, the, the name of the, the legal name of the entity doing the drilling with the parent name. And then we had to uh, look around to figure out what kind of private equity investment um, the parents' companies had. And so th that, that, that was one of the um, sort of detail-oriented um, research pieces, pieces that we did here that was, that was interesting and, and time-consuming. Alan, you just mentioned that you looked at a lot of federal records, and I believe the report mostly focused on federal drilling. Does this tell us anything about what's happening on private and state land um, in terms of private equity or is, can we not make that jump? I mean, I think that you could generally say that that um, the same companies are are drilling on private and state lands. I mean, they're not like specifically out to drill on federal and state lands. What, what federal and state lands offers is a database that you can download a large amount of data across many states and kind of look at um, federal lands. And there is also the fact that the federal, um, you know, the BLM 
rule was coming when we were working on this and sort of the need to highlight the um, uh, the importance of that BLM rule was, you know, in, in, in my mind as I was thinking about this. But the federal lands are just a portion of their activity. The same companies are doing drilling, you know, on state land in Colorado and in, in um, New Mexico, Wyoming, so on and so forth. Nicole, I want to wrap up by, I think, asking about that big picture there that Alan was talking about. Beyond just declaring bankruptcy, sticking taxpayers with the cleanup bill, are there other reasons to be concerned about private equity getting so far deep into the oil and gas business? And I'm thinking specifically about the climate uh, implications here uh, with basically a new form of, of capital coming in uh, at a time when America is theoretically going through this energy transition. The report has given us a window into public lands drilling, but to be clear, private equities drilling pads are scattered across you know, federal, tribal, state, and private property. So this report looks at public lands to give us an insight into one source of the cleanup costs associated with oil drilling, oil and gas drilling. Um, but the full picture will be far more costly um, as fossil fuel drilling on public lands makes up about 11% of the U.S. oil production, about 9% of gas production, according to the Bureau of Land Management. So considering that is just one small piece, the cleanup costs across the whole industry are going to be much larger. Yeah, I mean, on on the climate side, I mean, we, you know, it, it is a concern um, that this new um, and opaque source of funding has emerged to to keep fueling, you know, more oil drilling, and um, it, in all likelihood, it's of higher cost to the oil industry than accessing public markets. But it, you know, it just continues the um, the the future of fossil fuel drilling, and and you know, one of the key concerns out west is that you know, private equity and other sources of funding are also funding natural gas export terminals, LNG terminals in Mexico. And the, the flow uh, from Western basins you know, in Wyoming, Colorado, Utah of, of gas exports could increase, you know, in the coming years due to those terminals, which you know, really contradicts our, our push away from fossil fuels and really um, prolongs the industry's future, which really should be on a path to to be phased out at this point. In other words, there is a whole international layer here still to peel back on this onion in the future? Absolutely. And so one of the key moments for me in writing this report was realizing that, that you know, one of the drillers that we focused on, Jonah Energy, which was private equity backed, and I think the investor exited. But um, you know, one of the they they're active in Wyoming, and one of their one of their executives came to Washington to testify, and they put on the whole white white hat ESG kind of methane monitoring, and you know we're doing our part, we care, we're not climate deniers, that whole thing. But ultimately, if you look at their policy goals. They'd like a pipeline. They want to get the gas, you know, out and exported, whether it's to the Gulf of Mexico, whether it's um, to, to the Pacific coast. They want to get rid of any obstacles to permitting. They want litigation protections. So th- their agenda is really the same as all the other 
um, oil and gas players. In fact, you know, they kind of play into the to the oil and gas lobbies. One of their key talking points lately has been, oh, we're cleaner than Russia. You know, we're cleaner. We're, we're better off getting the gas from the U.S. West because otherwise it's going to come from Russia. And, you know, very self, self-serving argument. They make it all the time. And companies like big private equity investors, KKR, Carlyle, this goes in line with their argument. You know, oh, we, we just want to we're here to be responsible stewards of oil and gas. Like we're here to, you know, if we weren't investing, somebody else would, and we're here to make it cleaner. That's kind of the the, the tactic that they they use. So um, yeah, they're typically, as I said, they're typically not climate deniers for the most part, but they um, they're very sort of slick and sophisticated with their arguments. Nicole, back to you here, just for the last question: Is there anything that you really want people to know out of this report that we haven't touched on? Yeah, one aspect to this is how private, the private equity model also saddles the risk of these investments to the public, both in terms of public employees' retirement savings, but then public taxpayers on the cleanup side. So the massive profits we're seeing in the oil and gas industry now, that risk is being taken on by public pension funds who are putting up their workers' retirement savings as investment capital, um, hoping that the private equity firm will be able to squeeze out as much profits as possible from these oil and gas wells. But at the same time, squeezing out profits means that there is a higher risk of bankruptcies, accidents, spills, which then the public are accountable to paying for. So although the the um, the profits from oil and gas extraction are being held by these private equity firms. All the risks are being pushed down to both workers and taxpayers. All right. I think we're going to leave it there. I will remind folks that at least part of what we talked about here, the bonding end of it is potentially being addressed right now by the Bureau of Land Management's oil and gas rule. We've talked about this elsewhere on the podcast. We will drop links to those episodes as well as the public comment part of all of this into the show notes. Uh, Alan Zibel with Public Citizen, Nicole Heil with the Private Equity Stakeholder Project. Thank you both so much. This is fascinating research. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Time for some good news this week. The Biden administration has launched the American Climate Corps by executive order. This was a promise that President Biden made on the campaign trail three years ago. Unfortunately, it was dropped from the Inflation Reduction Act during negotiations. But now a memo from the White House says that the Climate Corps will put over 20,000 Americans to work in jobs that will help conserve and restore American lands and waters, bolster community resilience, deploy clean energy and energy-efficient technologies, and advance environmental justice. This is a very exciting program. We will be watching closely to see how it gets off the ground and how it can help improve our public lands. That's all for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, you can reach us at podcast at westernpriorities.org. Go give us a follow on social media if you don't already. And check out our TikTok if that's your thing. CWP Outreach and Campaigns Associate Sterling Hobart is doing some great work over there. 
thanks again to Alan and Nicole for their time today, and thank you for listening to The Landscape. <laughs>